You ready? Yes. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk-taking. On this week's Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, conversations about the very first presidential diarist in history, Janice Kearney, who followed President Bill Clinton's presidency and bought the Arkansas State Press newspaper from Daisy Bates. We'll also visit with history professor Edmund Davis, who will be presenting a free program coming up at Dreamland Ballroom downtown Little Rock on March 10th. That program's called The Mamba Mentality of Kobe Bryant. This is an encore presentation of Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Miss Kearney is one of 18 children born in Gould, Arkansas, to Ethel and James Kearney. After graduating from Gould High, she attended the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville earning a Bachelor of Arts degree in Journalism and a Master's degree in Public Administration. Once out of school, Janice pursued her passion for writing by purchasing a newspaper called the Arkansas State Press from Little Rock's famous African-American and civil rights activist, Daisy Bates. She published and managed the paper for five years until being offered a job as the Director of Minority Media Outreach for the Clinton-Gore presidential campaign. This career move began her long relationship with President Bill Clinton. After winning the election, she became part of Clinton's transition team, which led to working in the White House Media Affairs Office, which led to being appointed as the Director of Public Affairs and Communications for the U.S. Small Business Administration. Somehow, and we will find out how, in the middle of the Clinton-Gore era, Kearney became the first presidential diarist in U.S. history, chronicling President Clinton's day-to-day life until he left office. Interestingly, her diary was subpoenaed by Kenneth Starr during the Whitewater investigations and revealed no wrongdoing. And with all this insider information, it would be impossible not to author a book, which she did, entitled Conversations, William Jefferson Clinton, From Hope to Harlem. In the last decade, Kearney and her husband, Bob Nash, a former White House director of presidential personnel and son, have moved back to Arkansas, where she has started the WOW Publishing Company and the nonprofit Celebrate Maya Angelou Project. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table the entrepreneur, author, historian, and first presidential diarist, Mrs. Janice Kearney. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, you sound really good. It sounds great. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to be here. You're welcome. Thank you for joining me. You grew up in Gould, Arkansas. I don't even know where that is. Does anybody know where that is? Southeast Arkansas. It's about 70 miles south of here. Delta? Delta. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, about 30 miles south of Pine Bluff. Most people know where Pine Bluff oh, is. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were one of 18, I read. Mm-hmm. All Are all of your siblings successful like you? They're probably more successful. Really? We all, all, you know, decided what we wanted to do really early. And the blessing is that most of us are doing what we dreamed about doing. And most of my brothers ended up lawyers or judges or, you know, something in the law. They, They work in the law. And a lot of that, I think, had to do with growing up down during the pre civil rights era and experiencing some things that they really wanted to see righted. So they felt like going into the law would be a way to do that. I am the only certified writer in the family, but I was also the the strangest probably and introvert and writing was my way of expressing myself growing up. What'd your mom and dad do? Farmers. They were sharecroppers. And for your listeners who don't know what sharecroppers are, Usually very poor, that is kind of a prerequisite, but also they leased land from large farm owners and they worked the land. And basically we lived off our gardens and from the little that they would make from the land that they leased. You grew up doing hard work. Very hard work. Did your your mom and dad, can they read, are they educated? My parents were very, not, they didn't go to college, they didn't go to high school. My mother went to eighth grade. My dad went to school when he could. My dad is one of those people who lived an amazing life. He left home when he was 11. 
But somehow they were very intelligent, very good readers. They loved reading, and they instilled education into us very, very early. As a matter of fact, before early education became real, my father taught us all to read and write and count before we went to, to school, to public school, every I, one of us. I bet you didn't have a TV in your house. We did. We did. We did have a little 12-inch black and white TV in but, our house. But were your evenings filled with y'all sitting around reading or sitting around watching Reading, doing homework uh, mostly, and a lot of chores. And we could watch TV on weekends usually. You, yeah, you just didn't have time to sit around and no, do nothing. No, 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 no. Um, you got your first degree in journalism. Mm-hmm. And then you re-enrolled for a master's in public administration. Why? Well, because I knew that journalism was not going to be something that paid a lot of money. It's something that I loved. Uh, so I did work in journalism, but kind of part-time. I ended up working for the state of Arkansas, and I used my journalism degree to become a public information director, public affairs director for the state of Arkansas. And I did that for about nine years. And then in 1987 is when I left state government and went to work for Daisy Bates. So did you think when you were in school, so you think you felt like journalism was not going to pay very much money. So you went into public admi- uh, administration and were you thinking I'll go into government? Were you, how, did you have no, that in mind? I didn't really think about going into government, but that's the jobs that were available at the time. That was in the late 70s. And so then you, were you was that in Fayetteville? And no, that I came back to Little Rock. I went to school job. in Fayetteville, but I came back to Little Rock. And took the, mm-hmm. and took the government job. Mm-hmm. And then you decided, I'm going to buy a newspaper. That's well, a pretty big decision. <laughs> and it really didn't work like that. It, what happened was that um, a friend of mine told me that Daisy Bates needed a managing editor. And I felt like it was something in the stars or God or someone telling me, this is what you're supposed to be doing. You're not supposed to be working for, for government all your life because my love has always been writing. So I went and interviewed with Daisy Bates and I told her, I had met her when I was 16 years old and I interviewed for a job as a clerk, just a summer clerk, and I didn't get the job because I couldn't type. Not good enough for her anyway. So uh, when I went to see her, I told her, you did not give me that job when I was 16, and I really think you should do it now. And (laughs) she did. She gave me the job as her managing editor. Three months later, she came in and said, I'm retiring. I'm going home. She was sick. She had had lots of strokes by then, and she really couldn't talk very well. So she was going home. She retired, and she was going to sell the newspaper to somebody. She had been interviewing people, and I didn't even know what was going on. So I was just devastated because I knew I was supposed to be there. Uh, So I went home and talked to my husband and came back and said, Mrs. Bates, would you sell this newspaper to my husband and me, and we can pay you half of of what what you're asking, and then we pay the rest, you know, month to month. And she allowed me to do that. So I purchased the newspaper from her on time, as they say. So did, da- did Daisy Bates not help you out much? Yes, she did. How she, long did she stay after she, she sold stayed it to on. You? She stayed on for about a year. Oh, that's cool. And so she helped me out a lot. But she was sickly. She was sickly. There was just so much she could do. But just being there and telling me some things that I wouldn't have known if she hadn't been there, believing in me, all of that was very, very helpful. And I wouldn't have stayed if she she didn't stay with me for at least that year. Was there a time you thought I'll bit off more than I can chew? Oh, yeah. You'd wake up. I'd wake up and think that. At 3 o'clock in the morning? Yeah, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. But I knew I had to go back. (laughs) It's that 3 o'clock morning wake-up call. (laughs) What am I doing? Yes, I had those. So this is a great place to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Miss Janice Kearney, author, historian, and entrepreneur, and the first presidential diarist in U.S. history, We'll dig into her life at the White House during the Clinton years, and we'll find out what she's up to now. She's still moving and shaking. The Dreamland Ballroom inside Taborian Hall, the home of Flag and Banner, has recently been featured on television and constantly has public programs scheduled, including the just-scheduled Unburied Truth program, the Mamba Mentality of Kobe Bryant. It's the other side of NBA legend Kobe Bryant 
a free event at the Dreamland Ballroom on March 10th. Information on this event's available at the website, dreamlandballroom.org. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Miss Janice Kearney, author, entrepreneur, historian, and first presidential diarist in U.S. history to none other than Arkansas's favorite son, William Jefferson Clinton. Um, you get a job offer to become the director of minority media outreach for the Clinton-Gore presidential campaign. And you've got to decide if you're going to stay with the newspaper. You've been, you've been doing it for five years, so you can say to yourself, <laughs> I've done it. And I think you said Daisy's moved. Mm-hmm. What was that newspaper? What was its theme? Was it local news? Was it African-American it, news? It was, was it, local news. Um, And, of course, when she and her husband owned it in the 40s and 50s, it was specifically African-American news and what was going on, not only in Arkansas, but around the country. Because they, Yeah. They were one of the most noted newspapers in the South. So cool. And we Mm -hmm. didn't have the Internet. How did they even get that kind of information? I don't know. Word of mouth. I mean, there was a network. A network. Uh, Newspapers, yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So you've decided to take this job and you're going to, is Daisy still alive when you decide? Oh, yeah. Daisy. Did you sell it or did you close it? No. In 1993, when I left Little Rock and went to Washington, D.C., my sister took over. She ran the newspaper uh, a few years after I'd left. Um, So I didn't leave the newspaper completely when I took on the role as minority media coordinator. For the campaign. Right. And it wasn't a full, it was a full-time job, but it, I still did the newspaper. I would leave that job and go to the newspaper and work. Hard worker. Yeah. So um, it wasn't until December, I think, that I decided that I was going to Washington, D.C. And people don't believe me when I tell them I was not that excited about going to Washington, D.C. Uh, because I was leaving everything I knew. And what was important to me. And you're an introvert. Yes, definitely. And I heard all the, the stuff about Washington, D.C. and how you had to be a certain way and you had to, you know, live up to certain things. And I just wasn't real excited about that. It was, it was quite a transition from Arkansas to Washington, D.C., just as different from Arkansas as I'd heard. And I was very unhappy for those first few months. Did you close the paper? No, I didn't close the paper until we closed the paper in 1998, I think. And my sister just, she had done a great job, but it wasn't in her vein well, like it was in me. In 98 is about when the internet came on in 95. That was when everybody was like, uh-huh. newspapers are folding, uh-huh. and they uh-huh. thought it was going to be a dying industry. Of course, they found yeah. out since then it's not. Yeah, now, thank God, mm-hmm. it's not. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she, she she did her very, very best and did a great job, but it just wasn't in the cards. So talk about the transition team of mm-hmm. going up there. You were on the transition team for the Clinton for Clinton, along mm-hmm. with my mother in law Anne McCoy, yes. who we've had on the show. Yes. Talk about how what you what was the first thing you did? Well, the first thing we did I don't need I can't even really remember that first week or so because we were all getting ready for that inauguration. I know Anne has told you about that. It was work, work, work. So uh, I recall that I did not go to the first inauguration because we were so wiped out. You didn't go to the inauguration? No, no. I went to the second one, but I did not because I was just so exhausted. I worked there in media affairs. I did that for just a few months before I was appointed to the Small Business Administration. And I was at Small Business Administration for two and a half years. And when I left there, I came back as the diarist. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Ms. Janice Kearney, entrepreneur, author, historian, and first presidential diarist in U.S. history. We will dig into her life at the White House during the Clinton years, and we'll find out what she's up to now with her WOW publishing company and nonprofit Celebrate Maya Project. Arkansas Flag and Banner is proud to underwrite Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. McCoy began this broadcast a year and a half ago with the intention of offering a mentoring platform for those with an entrepreneurial spirit. Through candid conversation and interesting interviews with business and community-minded Arkansans, listeners gain insight into starting and running a business, the ups and downs of risk-taking, 
and the commonalities of successful people. Carrie McCoy, founder and president of Arkansas Flag and Banner, believes in paying knowledge and experience forward and developed this radio show as a means of doing so. The biographies, life experiences, and wisdom of her guests would likely go unheard if not for this venue. Rarely do people open up for an hour to an audience about their life, mistakes, triumphs, and pitfalls. This unique radio show allows the listener intimate access into the stories of prominent leaders in our state. I am Adrienne McNally, manager of the Arkansas Flag and Banner Showroom and Gift Shop, located on the first floor of the historic Taborian Hall on the corner of 9th and State Streets in downtown Little Rock, Arkansas. In business for 43 years, we offer an old school shopping experience with front door parking, clerks to help you, and department store variety. Open to the public Monday through Friday, 8 to 5.30, and Saturday, 10 to 4. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Miss Janice Kearney, author, historian, and first presidential diarist in U.S. history to none other than Arkansas's favorite son, William Jefferson Clinton. Tell us how that came to be. When I learned about his interest in hiring someone to become the presidential diarist, I was working at the U.S. Small Business Administration, and um, Nancy Hernreich, I don't know whether you know Nancy. I know Nancy. But Nancy um, called and asked, you know, would I like to interview for that job? And I said yes. And so we went back and forth. We I interviewed with it, and she gave me things that I needed to to look over and ask her questions about and all of that. And of course, many people were interviewing at the same time. So I, you know, I didn't think I probably would get it, but she called me um, in December, I think, of 1994 and told me that I had the job. So when did you interview? Uh, I interviewed in the fall, so a little a, bit of the fall and so the winter. So it took winter. a couple of months. Yeah, it took several months before. So you probably thought, I didn't get the job. Yeah, yeah, I really did. Did you have to come back for a second interview? Yeah, I did more than, at least two. I may, maybe did three. Because well, they, there were lots of people. They were serious. Yes. So you found out, you run home, you jump up and down, you're yeah, all excited, yeah. and then you report to work. What's your first day like? Um, my first day was just kind of learning, um, you know, little things about where I'd be sitting. I, I sat down, I sat like three doors down from the president's office. So you're in the West Wing. I was in the West Wing. I uh, talked to, spent a lot of time talking to Nancy because nobody had ever held, held this job. So we had to kind of create what my role would be uh, from day to day. So we spent several, we, we may have spent about a week or so going over that and figuring it out and how would I, uh, you know, talk to the president or find out what the president was doing and all of that. So we, it took a little while. Because now, I mean, there's a difference between being a governor and a president. Oh, I, yeah. He was very approachable as a governor, but when he became president, everything changed. Yes, yes, it was different, definitely. I mean, Secret Service everywhere, and, you know, you couldn't just go up and talk to the president whenever you wanted to, even though you worked in the White House. It, it, it just wasn't happening. Okay, so now you've figured out what you're going to do. What is that? You're going to show up every day? You, did you always work in the West Wing, or did you go to the East Wing when he was brushing his teeth? And go, he brushed his teeth at 8 o'clock this morning. He got the newspaper at 6 o'clock. No, all of my work was um, either in the West Wing or when there was something official going on somewhere else. East Wing, OEOB, if he went to a, another agency and did something. So you were part of the entourage? Sometimes I was, yes, very often. I mean, you would have to be. Yeah. Wouldn't you? I, w- I was most of the time, but I didn't have to be because there were times when he traveled to other countries that I did not go. Oh, you didn't? No, there were times. So what happened during those times were there were people that worked with him. Uh, there was one young man uh, named Chris Inskov who was his body person. He he was there wherever the president went, and he gathered all of the information that the president gathered when he when he traveled. Chris was part of our team, our group, so he would come back and he would sit down and share everything with me that I was not there to to witness or see for myself. So I would sit down when I'm not traveling with him. I would catch up on my diary because the diary might be forty pages long from one day to the next based really? on what President Clinton was doing. Really? Yeah, yeah. 
So when he was traveling and I was not with him, I would spend that time catching up on transcribing yeah, what you wrote. Yeah, transcribing everything because I could not use a tape recorder. Why? I, oh, because you know. Tapes, no. Yeah. So I, I wrote everything longhand and I would have to come back and transfer that to my computer, which was dedicated just to my diary. Wow. Did, why do you think you got that job? Well, he knew me and he knew, he, he knew that I was a writer. And um, I think that was a big part of it. Um, he knew my family very well. He worked with several of my brothers. Oh. But the thing was that he had to feel comfortable. Whoever that was, it had to be somebody that he felt comfortable with. And I could be the fly on the wall. I think one mm-hmm. reporter called me the White House fly on the wall. I could go to meetings and sit at the back of the, the room and just take notes and not, you know, try to make anyone pay any attention to me. I didn't know the president had a, an, a almost like a valet that follows him everywhere around. Right, right. And we actually called him um, uh, Butt Boy. Butt Boy. <laughs> what <laughs> butt a nice boy. name. <laughs> and you know, I've never heard Butt Boy's name before. What did you say his name was? Well, there were several during oh. the White House, but the one that we worked with the longest was Chris Inscoff, who was from heard of him. Northeast Arkansas, Northwest really? Arkansas. Yeah, he's a fine. young man, I guess, with no family. At the time, no, he didn't. He mm-hmm. didn't, because you kind of you have to devote twenty four seven to the White House. Yeah, I would mm-hmm. imagine. Um, your diary was subpoenaed by Kenneth Starr during mm-hmm. the Whitewater investigations. Mm-hmm. Were you frightened? Frightened and nervous. Yeah, I was, and not only that, but I was subpoenaed. I had to testify. Oh, uh, because of what I was doing, because of my role. So. Um, that was what I call the dark period of, of my era in the White House. Uh, for a lot of us, yeah. for a lot of us, we had to go through that. Um, but on the other side, uh, we felt really good about working for that president and felt, felt like he did some amazing things as president. So we went through that and we still kept going. Why was that, why was that Kenneth Starr investigation so... I mean, Whitewater was only an $80,000 real estate deal. We spent, how much did the country spend on that? Millions, millions. Yeah. And it was the whole, the whole thing was $80,000. It was an $80,000 loan. Nobody even knows that. They're like, Whitewater. And you're like, what? Mm-hmm. You ask people what it is, and they're like, I don't know. <laughs> it's, we, we asked that same question, but I don't think we ever got an answer. So what sticks in your mind from that time in your White House? What's your favorite memory of that time? Oh, there were just so many, and I'm always asked that, but I, I think... Oh, you it, are. Yeah, but I, I think the time that is most memorable is seeing President Clinton and um, Nelson Mandela become friends, how that friendship kind of evolved, and how Nelson Mandela came to his um, defense during that really dark period. And they just kind of gelled, and he would come over, and it was just wonderful to watch these amazing, huge personalities become friends. Um, so that was just for me to see Nelson Mandela. That was amazing, and we got to chance got a chance to go to Africa, and become a part of the whole uh, little bubble that President Clinton and Mrs. Clinton took with them and was able to meet Nelson Mandela and his family and do the state dinner over there. That was uh, just an amazing experience for me. I wish people could see your face. You're about to tear up over it. <laughs> it You're was about to one- make me tear up it over it. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And you, you see these two great men that you really, to me, it was two great human beings, um, really believing in people, really wanting to make the world better for everyone. How do you keep believing in people when you have so much obstacles? I don't understand. I don't know how you Some do that. Some people have those kind of hearts, those big hearts. Mm-hmm. Let me just tell everybody um, who we're talking with. We're li- you're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Miss Janice Kearney, author, entrepreneur, historian, and first presidential diarist to U.S. President, Arkansas favorite son, William Jefferson Clinton. We both just got kind of choked up over that last thing. <laughs> so he's uh, out of office. You've moved back to Little Rock. Did you meet your husband up there? 
No, I've known Bob Nash for years and years. He was in politics for a long time. He worked for Bill Clinton forever. Um, when I was working for state government, he was with Bill Clinton, so I met him during those years. But he's not your first husband. He's not my first husband. Did you end up, do you have another son? I have one son, and oh, yeah. Bob has one son. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. And Bob has a daughter, so together we have three children. So Bob Nash and you are working together at the White House. Mm-hmm. Is that when you kindled your relationship? We started dating right before that. We started dating in the really, really early 90s, 92, I think, one. During the campaign, I guess. Yes, during the campaign, right before the campaign. And we moved together when we moved to Washington, D.C., and we got married in 1994. Okay, while Mm -hmm. you were up there. Yes, while we were there. So what made you decide to move back to Little Rock? Oh, I, I would always come back to Little Rock. Arkansas is home. And my father was still living my father is someone I talk about a lot because um, my mother died when, in 1982, so I became my father's caretaker, which was one of the big reasons I really wasn't excited about leaving. Oh, yeah, because mm-hmm. that's right during the Clinton yeah, years. Yeah, but my father is just an amazing human being, and that would take a whole other show to talk about, but I think a lot of, of me comes from him. I mean, the nice, nice part for me probably comes from my mother, but the kind of quirky part and the kind of um, dreamy part and the part that loves to write and the stories part, all of that comes from my dad. My dad was just amazing. My dad lived until he was 107 (gasps) and he just died in 2014. So that was my main impetus for coming back to Arkansas when I came back. Because when I came back, he was turning 100. That's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was just so blessed that I was able to spend a lot of years with them uh, when I came back to Arkansas. What is it you love about your dad so much? He's just not like anybody I've ever met. And you asked if he was educated. Educated in school? No. But my dad was the wisest man I know on this earth. Uh, I used to tell Bill Clinton I said, you are the one of the best storytellers I've ever met, but you are number two. And he said, who? Who's better than me? I said, my dad. My dad was an amazing storyteller. And that's where I fell in love with stories. And writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's Janice Kearney on this week's Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Next on the show, history professor Edmund Davis, who will be at the Dreamland Ballroom at Flag and Banner in the Taborian Hall downtown on 9th Street on March 10th presenting a program called The Mamba Mentality of Kobe Bryant. My guest today is Arkansas Baptist College history professor Edmund Davis. Today we'll be going to school as we learn about Arkansas history, African history, and his passion, the Tuskegee Airmen, on which he has written a book, Pioneering African American Aviators, featuring the Tuskegee Airmen of Arkansas. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table the ambitious, faith-filled college professor, Edmund Davis. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the introduction. And uh, Ms. Carey, we've known each other for well over maybe close to 15 years almost. I was just about to say, do you remember when we first met, Barnes & Noble? Barnes & Noble, it sure was. Mm -hmm. Barnes & Noble, I think uh, Matthew had a real short hair back yeah. So we met at Barnes & Noble because Berna Love had just finished writing the Temple of Dreams book about uh, the Taborian Hall and the yes. Dreamland Ballroom, and mm-hmm. we were down at Barnes & Noble doing a book signing, and you came by the table, and another man mm-hmm. came by the table, mm-hmm. Sandman. Yes. The Sandman who does the who has a, a dredging company on the Arkansas River and sells sand and mm-hmm. has for years, and you two gentlemen got to talking. Do you remember what you had in common? I'm trying to think, refreshing my memory. You were both very successful, grown persons, but you mm-hmm. both were homeless when you were teenagers. Right, right And right. y'all got to talking about living in a box as teenagers. Mm-hmm. Yep, I, I remember that. But uh, I had a structure and a system of family who was there with me, my mom, my dad, my sisters. You know, we uh, struggled fiscally speaking. Uh, this was back in Philly. I'm from West Philly. I would say the year was maybe 86, 87. I was maybe about 12 years old. Of course, uh, I remember um, the proprietor of the building that we lived in, the landlord, if you will, uh, he had a little peephole and was, you know, looking at my mom. And, of course, my dad, like any dad, would would go off. And so, but, of course, uh, we didn't pay the uh, rent at the time. 
and uh, we were kicked out. And so, of course, so we left everything there. And after that, going from hotel to hotel to, uh, you know, places to stay to places to stay to uh, different uh, locations to Coatesville, Pennsylvania, where my mom on my mother's side has some family out there. We stayed out there for about a year or so, and things were uh, getting better. So we moved back to Philly in 87, 87, 88. I remember because uh, the movie out at the time was uh, uh, School Days, so that was about 1988. <laughs> uh, so we moved back to Philly, and, you know, we were on up, up at that time. And so that was 1986, 1987, and we kind of slept in movie theaters and we, uh, you know, scowl for food. But my mom and dad stayed with a job. They kept a job, even we, we didn't have a place to stay. So that inspired me to, to, to look at the glass half full rather than half empty and uh, to be on hard times. But my mom and dad stayed together. I saw in the face of adversity uh, how they, you know, still met the needs of their children. And, of course, uh, there were four of us, myself and three of my sisters, uh, from my dad's uh, second, first, second marriage. And so, um, you know, things were tough, but, uh, you know, we weathered the storm and God provided for us more. First and foremost, God provided for us. And so uh, I knew back then my dad always talked about history. He always talked about knowing who you are, American history. And I also think at the time the quarterback from the Washington Redskins was Doug Williams. He was the first African-American quarterback to win a Super Bowl MVP. He started for the uh, Redskins and they beat uh, John Elway and the uh, Denver Broncos, which was a big upset. And so uh, – my dad would always tell me to you know your history. And so that's how I became a historian. You know, 20 years before I became a professor of history at Arkansas Baptist College, my dad told me in 87 to know your history. And then here we are, 2007, 2008, I got the job at Arkansas Baptist College. And so I want to thank uh, my, my, my mom and my dad, Are biologically they? speaking, for for raising me the right way. And of course, uh, for the system that was around me, they always surrounded me by positive people. And uh, whether it was people who I work with or whether it was people in the church, you know, they always surrounded me by positive people. And so, uh, but, you know, that, it's, it's just been an experience. And uh, Are they still alive? My dad is uh, transitioned on to be with, need to be with the Father in Heaven. But my mom, she's still here. She's in Pennsylvania. She's in Philly, where I'm from. To anyone listening, West Philly in the house. <laughs> okay, so born and raised uh, on how'd, a playground. How'd West you end up in Arkansas? <laughs> Uh, Graham, well, no, when I graduated from Gramlin, I went into Louisiana Tech and earned a master's degree. And then I got a phone call from uh, Euler to come teach as an adjunct instructor. And so not full-time, but just part-time. And so there, um, before there, I met a guy named John Merritt, Sergeant John Merritt. He was the uh, one of the ranking members of the Little Rock PD back in the uh, 80s and in the 90s. He just recently retired about two years ago. But he said, uh, and he's a brother to me. A older brother. A but you met him group. at Louisiana Tech? I met him at Gramlin. He went to Gramlin back in 78. But oh. he would always visit the campus. So he was alum. Right. Yeah, he was alum. He would always visit Gramlin. And uh, he pledged the same organization that I pledged, Groove Five Groove, which is a small social fellowship incorporated. And so uh, I said, John lives in Little Rock. This school from Little Rock called me UALR. I'd never heard of UALR. I've heard of the Razorbacks when they won a title in 94. And uh, I've heard about... You know, 40 minutes of hell with the basketball team. <laughs> of course, the uh, football team, but never UALR. So I looked up Euler. I said, I can do this. So I got my master's, and they said that you could teach. You qualify to teach with a master's degree. And so I did that for a year, and then the contract ran out. So Pulaski Tech opened up that window because someone told me about a school, a smaller school right across the river in, at, uh, North, in North Little Rock. Rock. And so I went over there and met James Becker, and uh, I think the Holy Spirit told me, don't just send your resume and go ahead and walk it over there. And I got the job like that because the guy says, since you had the, the gall to, you know, ask for a job in my face with this application, you know, I can't promise you anything, but, you know, I just might hire you. And so I had the job the uh, next week. And so I was four years professor over there at uh, Pulaski Tech. And then uh, Arkansas Baptist uh, came, uh, President Omar Fitzgerald Hill. Mm -hmm. He was president in 06 when I was at Pulaski Tech. And so I had an opportunity to uh, teach at Baptist College the last 10 years. Now it'll be 10 years next year. And so uh, it's been a great transition, a great ride. But that whole time, uh, we have to not neglect the fact that there was one special man in my life, Dr. Milton P. Crenshaw, mm -hmm. the Tuskegee Airman. And I met him when I was teaching at Pulaski Tech. And I had a friend come visit me from Philly, Ian Grant. Uh, but to say that, me and him stopped at Philander Smith College. And I heard about this 
event going on at Philander, lo and behold, I didn't know I was going to meet Dr. Milton P. Crenshaw that day. That day changed my life. Yeah. And so, of course, went on campus and uh, ate some of the hors d'oeuvres they had around, met the president. But I saw this man. He had to be about 87 back then. His posture was just upright. When I saw him, I had to go ahead and make sure my posture was right. And he was tall. Yes. He was a tall man Mm -hmm. with great posture. Great posture. And he had this clean suit on. He had this debonair-esque feeling like he was from uh, a higher pedigree. So I said, who's this guy? You know, I didn't come here to look at men, but who's this guy? You know, I came here to, (laughs) to, to, to look and see what's going on. But again, I was attracted to this man from his presence. I'm thinking, who is this guy with this suit on? And he's got to be close to 90. Who is this guy? Everybody's around him. So by the time the dust smoking cleared, I had a chance to meet him. I shook his hand, and uh, they had already said who he was, Milton Crenshaw. And he introduced me to himself, and I shook his hand, and he had a firm handshake. And so I was very, uh, you know, very uh, pleased with that, but even more pleased because I said, hey, how much would you charge Pulaski Tech to come speak to my history class? And I was teaching five courses at the time. This is about 2005. I think the date was February 27, 2005. And so uh, he says, I don't need money. I'll do it for free. I'm not led by money. When do you want me to come over there? Love and that so, man. Right. I was paused at that. I said, wow. Because most people have an honorarium of fee they charge, and you can make good money that way. He says, I don't chase money. I don't need money. I'll do it for free. And so I told my department chair and all the other leaders at the campus, it was just supposed to be for Ed Davis's course for my class, but it turned out to be a whole campus thing. An institutional event and so again I'm thankful that he came and uh, he was driving at that time you know at 86 or 87 this is 2005 so he would be about 86 or 87 at that time and so uh he came he came and that changed the game for for my life and for a lot of people's mm-hmm. lives he's changed a lot of people's life think about what he did in World War mm-hmm. II he flew well you tell us well, what he did right you know he was and this sub- is not just him this is all the Tuskegee Airmen right right you know he's he's been if you will, the, the poster child, well, poster man uh, here in Arkansas, but Arkansas had 15 to 16 pilots that went on to serve this nation uh, by the uh, Army Air Corps between 1940 and 1945. And you're talking about black men? African-American males, yes, right. ma'am. And so uh, Crenshaw, Mr. Crenshaw, Dr. Crenshaw, was the first to graduate from the CPTP. The CPTP is an acronym for Civilian Pilot Training Program, and uh, a lot of people don't know that and by me being a, a trained historian, before the world knew who Dr. King was and Rosa Parks was, these men and women uh, fought on both sides, both sides, but I mean uh, ethnicism or some people call it racism here, mm-hmm. uh, but also um, women had to fight sexism and racism, you know, back in, back in the 1930s and 1940s. And Crenshaw, Dr. Crenshaw, God rest his soul, he, he told me all about this. But what was more fascinating to me was the manner in which he told this to me. You would think a man almost 100 years old uh, who has a sharp mind would be sort of bitter about how people of minority color were treated, African-Americans in particular. But he wasn't. You know, he was like, yeah, it was rough for us back then. You know, but uh, he always took the attention off him and pointed it back to God. And that's where I learned that from, too. You know, he would always uh, not take credit for too many things. He would say, no, mm-mm, God has been with me. That's it. And so I really, really, really uh, take that away from what from what God did with Mr. Crenshaw because it's rubbed off on me now. But, um, yeah, he uh, definitely served in that capacity as a flight instructor. Okay, he was a civilian pilot flight instructor. He trained those red tails, that movie, those men, those women. A lot of people don't realize that some of those women showed some of those men how to fly. And so, you mean there were women Tuskegee Airmen? There were women Tuskegee Airmen. I did Airmen. not yes, realize ma'am. that. They did not serve in aerial avenues or see any action per se. Oh, okay. They didn't fly the planes. They didn't fly the planes. They were well, on the They ground. flew the planes, but they showed them in training how to fly. Uh, there was you. one lady... Uh, there was uh, Dorothy, forgot Dorothy's last name. Watch when the show's over, it's going to come back. But uh, but you had uh, a lot of women, in particular, Herbert Carter, his wife. She showed him how to fly, and he was a red tail, bona fide, certified. I had a chance to meet him about 10 years ago. And what does red tail mean? Red tail means it's just pretty much the red part of that uh, aircraft. It is a distinctive feature. So when people see you in aerial action or just kind of traveling about, uh, aeronautically speaking, you have that red tail. At the, it at means the, you're a Tuskegee. Exactly. For the most part, uh, I would say nearly 100% of the time, if you have a red part at the back of your uh, aircraft, 
you were considered a, a you were a red tail. Was Tuskegee only African Americans, or was no. it a mix of both? Uh, of majority all, all African American males, but you had Hispanic Americans there, you had Native Americans there, you even had Caucasian European American males there oh. that were Tuskegee Airmen. A lot of people don't know about that, uh, but of course, overwhelming majority African American males. Uh, but the f- folks who who trained them. Uh, it was a, an ensemble of different ethnic backgrounds. Why weren't backgrounds. they just part of all of the airmen? Why did they have to be separated out? It goes back to skin color. Oh, okay. Uh, people, you know, fear fear that, and of course, uh, that they, they just want to mix the races. So they were like, well, we'll make a bunch of ace flyers over here and a bunch of ace flyers mm-hmm. over here, and we'll separate them. Their jobs were the same. Well, their jobs were the same, and, and going back to the, the assertion about women, you were considered a Tuskegee airman if you worked in any capacity in any avenue any genre at Tuskegee Institute between that time frame, 1940 and 1945. So women, a lot of them were nurses. They had nothing to do with aviation, exploits. They were in a medical profession. They're still Tuskegee Air women. Even because they were there, they were held to the same standards as the men were. Dress code, had to go in by a certain time. Uh, People who were sanitation workers, Tuskegee Airmen still. They don't get the credit, though. Yeah. Only people that we know about the ones who flew. And the school is still in existence. Yes, ma'am. The school, Tuskegee, is now a university. In 1982, it changed from Tuskegee Institute to Tuskegee University. And somebody uh, on Facebook reached out to me in an inbox about, uh, did I know about the syphilis experiment? I said, yes. Uh, there was the what? A, uh, there, of course, between in 1932 for 40 years, from 1932 to 1972, uh, men at Tuskegee were given syphilis as a medical experiment what? and uh yeah this has been all over the world many times over i heard about it before i was an adult uh but of course it's a true story it's a true story bill clinton in 1998 uh, made an apology to uh, the living survivors who were in their 90s back then and so of course uh, no they were in their 70s or 80s back then but um how did that, that kind of stuff get approved i don't understand and, and that's the thing under the radar and you know there's there's plenty of different stories not just with uh african-americans but you know, Hispanic Americans and, you know, just different groups of people. And I think uh, uh, even poor white people have had. Exactly, exactly. So I saw on a documentary one time about the Tuskegee Airmen that Eleanor Roosevelt went there to visit them. Yes. And all she, of and her people, her handlers said, don't go down there. Right. And she got in a cockpit. That is true. And, and she was a go-getter back in 1940. She was a rule breaker back yes, then. She, she was, was a visionary. Real, she was a visionary a, 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 as well. And if it was, if it had not been for people like her, who knows where the Tuskegee Airmen would be? A lot of people, and you have to give credit where credit is due. She didn't have that spirit of fear. You know, fear is the genesis for a lot of people yeah. that don't get jobs, that are hurt, and we just have this stigma. We go by what somebody said, and sometimes it's good, but sometimes it's not. But she said, go ahead and call my president. Of course, Franklin <laughs> said that that's my wife. Let her do what she wants to do. And, He's uh, a good husband. Dr. Crenshaw, <laughs> he was the one that actually strapped her into the seatbelt that was flown by Charles Alfred Anderson, who of course, uh, he was called Chief Anderson. Everybody knows he has a household name in aviation all over the world. Um, He was from Philly, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So Milton strapped her in the, that may have been where I was watching. It was a documentary Mm -hmm. on AETN, maybe about Milton Crenshaw, Mm -hmm. and that may have been where I read that about him, or heard that about him. So what made you decide to write the book? I said, I've been traveling around the country, especially in the South, the deep South with you know, some man, Mr. Crenshaw, who at the time, you know, in his late 80s, early 90s, I was taking notes. I was a speech writer, a lot of people don't know, for a number of speeches. And he would proof it and, you know, really, really became a sensitive issue to me because after being a speech writer for so long, and he'll get up on that stage, up on that podium in front of hundreds of people. Sometimes it's a small class of fifth graders. Sometimes it's a couple of hundred people who are my age in their 40s or older. And so he would not stick with the script I'm thinking man it took me a whole week to write that and he would just start saying what he wanted to say <laughs> and so I kind of minimized my time but by writing his speeches but um not just that but just picking him up and just intimately speaking going to his house on Ringo Street then going to see and God rest her soul Mrs. Marion Torrance his lady friend who lived on uh on Abigail just spending a lot of time with with these classy people, you know, I said, hey, you know, God's telling me you got to do something. You got to go archive this. You're a historian. Archive this. You have to tell future generations about your experience. Some may not believe you. So, of course, that's where I became, you know, taking pictures and things like that. And so, you know, I got this idea today, one day, 
to say, go ahead and, and ask him for a book. You know, how does he feel about writing a book about it? And so, of course, it was supposed to be a biography just on Crenshaw. Of course, that's not the case with this textbook. The book is an ensemble of different biographies of the people who uh, served during World War II that are from Arkansas, and of course the women who in some cases preceded them and in some cases flew at different times from them. And so uh, that's where it came from, and he gave me his blessings. Everybody that I've talked to, whether it was in D.C., Philly, I've interviewed pilots from World War II in California, San Antonio, Texas, Alabama, uh, Montgomery Air Force Base, Everywhere you go, with grant money that is, the Arkansas Black History Commission, uh, I received grant money funds to collect all this data and to comprise it into uh, a book. And of course, I told them in 2007, uh, you know, Lord is my witness, I'm going to go ahead and get this project done. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking today with educator, author, historian, survivor, Edmund Davis, history professor at Arkansas Baptist College in Little Rock, Arkansas. Tell us again, you became a teacher because your dad talked about being a historian, but that doesn't really mean you have to be a teacher. Why did you pick teaching? Well, when I was at Gremlin State University, National Champs in Football and Great Nursing Program, you know, it grew on me because when I was a freshman uh, coming from the East Coast to the South, I was a double major with biology and chemistry, and uh, me and biology were okay, but me and uh, chemistry didn't have a good relationship at all. (laughs) But I was academic All-American my first year, and so I ran track and did all those things, but I was the president of the history club uh, for an extended time. It was two years, and we won a national quiz bowl, me and the team, and so, but to say all that, my dad said 10 years before I went to Grambling, know your history, but then when I got to Grambling, it pretty much confirmed what I was supposed to do, which was 20 years now, uh, well, 17 years in a classroom. It just confirms uh, what I love and what my passion has always been, and that's American history, it's world history, you know, it's women's history, it's African-American history, it's radio history, it's food history, yum, yum. You know, it's just been those types of things. Uh, Because my dad was a master chef, and uh, you know, I'm not a chef at all. I can cook a little bit, but you'd have to talk to Monica about <laughs> that. So why did you decide that. to be a teacher of history? Right, uh, because um, it was it's, it was from that switch from biology and chemistry to history. You know, I said, you know what, I can do this. People would always on campus ask me to talk about different things, especially things that were civil rights related or human rights elevated or things that were relevant to the news stories. I had always been a big proponent of watching. Uh, not social media this is before social media was out but watching the news again going back to my dad he would always talk about uh know your history and so he planted those seeds in the 80s but in the 90s in college you know it resonated and of course 2000 2001 it became a graduate assistant at louisiana tech university uh, go bulldogs and so (laughs) it's stuck with me ever since and of course i got the call from uh, ualr Mm -hmm. to come up and that's been 15 years. I've been here the, the whole you time. You must like it in Arkansas. Right. I tried to run, you know, but... Uh, Can't get away once you right, get here. Exactly. I'm telling you, it sucks you in. Exactly. So when people take your course, what is it you mm-hmm. want them to walk away with? With the uh, knowledge of... And I'm really a content-driven uh, kind of guy. Content, I mean, who, what, when, where, why, and how. I always tell people to take good notes. Now, when it comes to U.S. history, you know, a lot of people, in particular, being an African-American man teaching at an HBCU... You know, a lot of people assume that you start with, you know, slavery. Like, no, history doesn't start with slavery. You know, uh, slavery has been around since the, you know, biblical days. You know, it didn't become a racial thing until it got to the United States, until it got to the Caribbean. That's when it changed up. You know, when you look at Russell Crowe and his name in the movie Gladiator, he was Maximus Meridius Decimus. He was an army general who commanded legions. He was a slave, too. If you check out the movie, you've seen the movie. Oh, yeah, great uh, movie. A great movie, exactly. That came out in 2000, Oscar-nominated, Oscar winner. But um, when you look at the difference between those slaves and the difference between slaves in the United States, you know, it was based off the color of your skin, not mm-hmm. necessarily, you know, uh, what your, uh, you know, power was. And so when we have, in this case, early history class, we talk about things like that. We want students to always ask questions, you know. If I'm in a classroom, and I've been so for 15 years, but if I'm in a classroom and students have no questions, that's a challenge to me, and that says something that, you know. They're not engaged. They're not engaged. You have to engage them. Yeah. And uh, I have to make it uh, attractive. I don't want to use the S word, but I want to make it attractive to them. Uh-huh. And so we do that with uh, 
our course guidelines at ABC. We've given academic freedom to where I can actually make some adjustments to my course guidelines to oh, say, that's nice. right, and to so, fit the fit the students, right, what, what they would be interested. Every in. Every classroom has a different DNA, yeah. And of course, and I tell other you know business leaders, uh, small like myself, about you know your market and how you supposed to market things. And my wife, she helps me out. Monica, she tells me a lot about different things because she actually went to school for that. I didn't. I'm grassroots. I'm just learning from what I see and trial and error. But um, that's good. She's a trained teacher, and I'm not a trained teacher, but she's actually a trained educator. You recently were the facilitator and a program coordinator for mm-hmm. a pilot program at Covenant Keepers Charter mm-hmm. School called Respondability. I right. love that. Targeting sixth and eighth grade students to help them understand how to respond to law enforcement in mm-hmm. the 21st century. Respondability, the root word for that is responsibility. And, uh, you know, it was given to me in 2014. I was laying in the bed one day, and this term respondability came I out like of nowhere. It. I'm like, respondability, God, what are you talking Respond Respondability. We have, uh, you know, iPhones, and we. this is the smart device generation. These, uh, not generation learners for millennials, but these generation Z learners, you know. So I said, okay, let's make it attractive. Let's make it relevant to them. Respond ability. Respond, I have the ability to respond responsibly to law enforcement and authorities. No. Anything you do, somebody's recording when you think they're not recording it, whether you're a cop or a civilian or a citizen. We create different uh, phases of this program. Everywhere I go, I invite officers, federal, state, campus security, um, apartment security, mall security to come in and to be a part of the program. You um, have a theme through throughout today's show about responsibility, about how much you love Milton Crenshaw and how he took responsibility for his life and never blamed anybody, loved his life and never and you know always gave credit to other people yes, and about you then about your your homelessness with your parents and how they stayed responsible throughout mm-hmm. you know, all those trying times. That seems to be a Thank theme you. throughout your life. Yes, uh, and it just hit me. Now that you what do you want it, your legacy in Arkansas to be? I think first and foremost, if I was pleasing to, to God, and in God's eyes, and then after that, if I was a good husband and a good dad to our son, and uh, just a an agent for change, you know, was it with all was all that I did pleasing, you know, to God. Yes, you're ma'am. very community minded. I love yes, that. Ma'am. I got you a gift too that you're gonna love. It's uh, a desk set, uh, and I should have gotten you one for Philly, putting your flag <laughs> Philly. But it's a desk set with the U.S. flag, the Arkansas Thank flag, you. and the Christian flag because I know how devout you are. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so I much. I never talk to you that you don't praise the Lord in some way or another. Thank you it's so very much. refreshing. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. If you'd like to sponsor this show or any show, contact me, Gray, at flagandbanner.com. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream.